Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, great organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. If you're one of the people that work to build grassroots advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you're in the right place. Now, let's get started. In today's episode, we speak with Nate Smith, Vice President of Engagement for the American Traffic Safety Services Association where he oversees the association's member engagement, recruitment, and retention strategy. He also manages uh, ATSSA's Washington, D.C. legislative office, focusing on federal, state, and grassroots advocacy, government relations, uh, related communications, advocacy strategy, and serves as the treasurer of the association's political action Previously, Nate was a lobbyist for the National Court Reporters Association, and he has worked on the Hill and on presidential campaigns. He is active with the American Society of Association Executives, where he serves as the chair of the ASAE Political Action Committee and is past chair of ASAE's Public Policy Committee. Uh, Mr. Smith is also honored as the 2020 Leading Association Lobbyist by association friends. Please welcome Nate and thank you for being on today's show. Thanks for having me, Roger. Uh, Glad to have you here. Now let's get started on this. So first of all, how do you use the acronym? Is it it ATSA? Is that how you say it? Yep, it's ATSA. Okay, so ATSA is the American Traffic Safety Services Association. You represent about 1,500 companies. Uh, Can you explain for the listener what those companies do? Yeah, sure thing. So ATSA has been around for over 50 years. Um, Our members manufacture, distribute, and install roadway safety infrastructure equipment. So it's literally everything on the road that keeps you safe from point A to point B when you're out on the road uh, doing whatever you're doing throughout the day. So think about companies that manufacture or install guardrail or traffic signs and signals, pavement markings, uh, rumble strips, um, anything that's orange or safety related in a work zone is our folks as well. Um, It's also the individuals who manage work zones. So I like to say if if you're stuck in traffic due to a work zone, it might be our sort of responsibility to get you through that that work zone safely, efficiently, and onto your sort of your destination. Uh, But think about it as a positive thing. When work zones are out there, the the infrastructure is being rehabbed or or built for the first time, and uh, and we're making that process safer for you and your loved ones. Well, I have a I have a golf friend of mine that we we golf together here in Scottsdale, and he uh, 
he owns a company that does that those very things. He provides the cones, the barriers, the barricades, and and all those things. So I'm sure that he is a is a member. I haven't had a chance to talk to him, but if he isn't, I'll I'll turn him over to you to make sure. Send that it my way. Now that I handle membership as well, uh, be happy to take a trip. Exactly. Out well, we need to close. We need to close the deal, don't we? Uh, <laughs> so what are ATSA's major priorities in this 117th Congress? So we are um, just a few months away from the expiration of the one-year extension of the surface transportation program. So uh, the program was due to expire just about a year ago, uh, September 30th, October 1st last year. Uh, Congress opted in the midst of a contentious presidential election and congressional re-elections uh, to punt for a year and do a one-year extension on that program. So coming up by October 1st, Congress has to pass and the president has to sign into law a comprehensive, likely five-year-long um, surface transportation or highway bill. Layered on top of that, which is interesting and a little confusing to, to many, is this discussion about infrastructure, sort of writ large, a broader infrastructure package. You know, in the news, you heard the president was attempting to work with Senate Republicans on trying to find a bipartisan compromise. Um, those discussions are, are ongoing with now a bipartisan group of senators focused on infrastructure. That is above and beyond um, the surface transportation program that we're working on. So it's it's a it's an incredibly busy time right now. Um, we are dual tracking. We are we are laser focused on trying to get a long-term highway bill enacted into law before October one. But on top of that, we're trying to encourage Congress and the president to continue having these discussions about increased investment in infrastructure. Because what we do today is, is we know that we're not investing enough. I mean, even if we increase funding for roads and bridges through the traditional five-year program, we know that is still not enough, especially as compared to a lot of our global uh, partners and adversaries around the world. So would the FAST Act, if they incorporated infrastructure where they were talking about the infrastructure bill, they've been talking about seven, eight years or anything else. Do you think that would change the concept of, of the FAST Act, which is currently what, a five-year act? Do you think that could expand that to maybe fit that seven, eight years so that people know well in advance what funding is going to be out there for that period of time? That's a great question. And it's um, the great thing about a long-term highway bill, normally five years, you're alluding to the current one, the FAST Act, um, is it gives the certainty to the state DOTs and to contractors um, that the job will be there five years from now. That allows them to invest in not just equipment, but personnel as well. They're not gonna hire people if they just think the job's gonna be there for six months or 12 months. They'll just do multiple shifts with the same people. But if they know the work's gonna be out there five years from now, um, that's when they start seeing significant increases in, in personnel and in um, expensive equipment. Your question is interesting. And, I, and, and to be honest, I don't know that anyone has a firm answer to that yet well, because of the nature of this sort of dual track system. I think what you will see is a surface transportation, a five-year highway bill reauthorization um, enacted. And I think it would be layered upon that, I think you'll see an infrastructure package. And so I think you will have a five-year highway bill layered with potential extra money that would go out five or eight years 
Um, and then you would have a new level of a baseline five years from now that you would then reauthorize the program on at that point. So that's my best guess with the, with the information I have, um, which means who the heck knows? But, um, I was going to ask, which way is the wind blowing and what time of the day is it? And then we have a better idea of what the answer is right now. Exactly. So, so, you know, we, like I said, we, Congress has got to do a highway bill reauthorization this year, you know, no doubt about it. And they, and they really want to do that infrastructure piece. I also wouldn't be surprised if the highways and bridges portion of the seven or eight year infrastructure package was five. And then they look at it again, five years uh, from now, just to kind of keep it clean and in harmony with a surface bill. Yeah. Actually, that makes a that makes a tremendous amount of sense. So, so that's the main piece. Uh, I also know that you work with states an awful lot. Uh, what are the type of issues that you monitor, watch, and speak out on uh, at the state level for you? A lot of it is funding related as well. Um, one of the it'll be a challenge, but it'll be one of those good challenges. Is traditionally there's an 80-20 financial split on federal programs. Um, in the transportation world, 80% feds, 20% state. Imagine a scenario where a state is barely able to meet those matches today. And if we see a 30 to 40% increase of overall funding from the feds, suddenly that 20% match increases theoretically by 30 to 40%. And so states are going to have to, and many states have already begun this process of raising their revenue um, in anticipation of needing to meet increased needs. Um, but you're going to see, I think, states undertake an effort to in enhance their revenue at the state level to make sure they're not leaving any money on the table when a larger infrastructure package gets enacted into law. So, so that brings me to a thought, maybe a question that I have, particularly when we were in the thick and throes of everything a year ago with the pandemic and, and with the shutdown and some states shutting down longer than others, there was a massive concern that state budgets would just be rough because of not having the spending, not raising the tax revenue that they would typically raise uh, when consumers are out there doing, you know, doing their thing and spending their money. I don't think that's been as dramatic as they thought. Are you seeing the same or am I way off base? There's still a concern, and at this point, I'm just speaking from a state DOT perspective, not the full state government perspective. You're right that the, the horrific crisis that could have happened didn't materialize, although there was some relief to specifically to state DOTs um, at the, with the COVID recovery package that was passed right before Christmas last year. There was $10 billion included in that, for, specifically for state DOTs, to keep the lights on. So that was certainly helpful. Um, but we did see uh, travel and receipts in the state transportation funds uh, be a little bit at a steadier rate throughout the pandemic last year than some um, observers were expecting. There was this expectation that there would this be this cliff that that revenue fell off of. Um, and that in most places didn't materialize necessarily. Yeah, interesting. Um do you partner, does, does uh, ATSA partner with other organizations to help achieve your priorities? It's a huge piece of, of what we do. I mean, we're a relatively small organization. Um, I think we have a big voice and I think our message 
is very well received by policymakers at the federal and state level. Um, but at the end of the day, our government relations team is a team of three. Um, so, so we need, it's incumbent upon us to partner with, with other groups who will help amplify our message. You know, it's, at the end of the day, all of these individuals who, are, who come on your podcast are special interests, right? I mean, I know that has a, a dirty connotation, but it's yeah, true. But, I mean, but, but the, the reality of the fact is I represent the roadway safety infrastructure industry. Um, that's, that's who are our members and that's who gives us from our board um, direction of what to talk about on Capitol Hill. But what we talk about is also a public interest. I mean, the fact that we're making roads safer is gonna help you and your neighbor and your cousin um, who are out there on the road as well. So it, it will positively impact their lives um, as well as our member companies' lives. So we work really closely with partners, even outside of the traditional construction industry on uh, achieving some of the goals. And I'll give you a quick example. Yeah, uh, right that. now we're, we're right now we're working on a rural and tribal road safety initiative um, in both the House and the Senate, trying to roll this into um, this whatever's coming, uh, this infrastructure package or highway bill or what, who knows. Um, so but the partners that we're working on uh, include National Association of Counties and the American Public Works Association, uh, American Society of uh, civil engineers. Um, so so it's it's people who are construction related, but also people who are out there trying to do the job. You know, National Association of Counties owns, you know, the, their members, their individual counties around the country own thousands and hundreds of thousands of miles of road. And, and we're trying to get them the resources to invest in these areas. Another great example, Roger, is historically we've worked really closely with AARP. People think, wait, I don't I don't understand the connection there. Older driver safety is critically important and who best to par partner with than the folks who represent 50 million plus older Americans. And so we had a great working relationship had, and historically have had great successes legislatively uh, working with AARP on older driver safety issues. So I'm a huge believer. It's not easy working in coalitions, um, but I'm a huge believer in the successes that come from them. Well, coalitions broaden the special interests. You know, they make it much easier for people to understand the importance of an issue when you have a diverse group of people that you wouldn't think normally would be sitting in the same room, talking about the same subject, uh, helping to advance that. And I think, you know, the relationship with the counties is, is quite interesting. And I don't know that you would know the statistic. Maybe you do. I have no clue. But when you just in concept think about it, the counties around the nation probably have four to five times the amount of actual mileage in highways than the states do and dramatically more than the federal government has. And the interesting thing about that, Roger, is the majority of the money that comes from the federal government goes to the states um, with an expectation, hopefully, that the, the, the funding would then trickle down as you might imagine, that doesn't always happen. And so one of the areas that we worked with NACO um, and, and some of our other partners on is specifically on road safety issues and specifically on rural road safety issues is driving those federal safety dollars down to locally owned rural roads around the country to ensure that when you're driving across rural Maine where my parents live and you're not on a state owned road, which there's like two in the town that they're in, the rest are town owned roads, that there are the appropriate safety 
uh, and, and enhancements and, and countermeasures that are on those roads. And these things by and large are, are low cost and cost effective. Think about, you know, there's a curve coming up, put a sign up, but there's a curve coming up. Strike your roads so, so when at night you can see that there's a curve coming yeah. up. A lot of these rural roads are higher speeds. So having any sort of indication the further along the road for a driver um, or any road user is gonna be critically important, but that requires financial assistance. And so it's trying to get some of those safety dollars down to you know, maybe roads that, doesn't, that don't rise to the attention of, uh, of, of the federal government. Let's take a little twist here and kind of go into the philosophical side of, of advocacy here, uh, if you will. How important is your relationship development with elected officials? The interesting thing, I mean, as, as lobbyists, as government relations professionals, um, you know, we, we've spent decades telling our uh, you know, members of our boards of directors or our, our CEOs um, that shoe leather lobbying is the end all and be all. You have to be on Capitol Hill. You have to be there building these relationships um, so that you build that trust factor. You know, you, you're not just some uh, Yahoo coming coming in to, to ask for some sort of program or, or funding for a specific issue. During COVID, it's been really interesting. I know that wasn't really necessarily the crux of your question, but but the, the COVID aspect of this and, and, the, and, and Congress being closed to the public by and large over the last almost year and a half um, has been really interesting because it, it almost bears true that yes, you can do advocacy remotely and um, via Zoom, um, but it's very difficult to establish relationships that way. You can, you can build on relationships that you already have relatively easily. And you certainly can maintain relationships in a virtual manner, but it's relatively difficult to, to from, from a cold yeah. start, build that relationship and start it remotely. So it still requires, in my opinion, getting back in and having those face-to-face -face connections or just passing somebody in the hallway or seeing somebody, um, you know, I live here on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. So it's a neighborhood in addition to sort of a business area or a government business area. So you see people when you're out and about and that's, and that's like, the part of lobbying that isn't in any guidebook or in any job description, but it's just what we do is, is build those relationships. So but it's relationship that's, still the, that's still the foundation. Yeah, it's, it's still relationship building. Doesn't matter where it takes place, it's still relationship building. And, and I have heard because of Capitol Hill, uh, because of both 1-6 as well as the pandemic and everything else that's been hit, that there are people that are actually going out now and staff people that are going out and meeting in coffee shops and having some of these meetings because they want to be out too. They want to be in person. They they need that con connection, particularly for a group of people that have new people walking in every 15 minutes of every day while they're there under normal circumstances to not have that now almost has to feel like a ghost town. Huh? Well, think about flip that on its head and think about this way. Um, you know, the, the chiefs of staff and legislative directors who began during COVID, um, you know, maybe working now for a member of Congress that didn't serve on a committee that they're familiar with. So they've got to learn all those new partners and stakeholders. I, I mean, I have a dozen examples of that I could, you know, I could share where, you know, we do it by phone, we do it by Zoom or, or video conference, but also there, you know, the coffee shops around town, you're absolutely right. Um, 
because there is a there's a hunger for that because Congress is still doing work and they're doing we're talking trillions of dollars on infrastructure for my specific area. I mean, we need to have those relationships built, but there's been a fair amount of staff turnover too with new members of Congress post-election. So it's been this sort of strange dichotomy of, of, of trying to establish relationships both, both from the inside Capitol Hill to, to stakeholders and from stakeholders back into Capitol Hill, both sides sort of wanting that. Yeah, and we haven't seen anything like this since we had the combination of uh, 9-11 and anthrax. Mm-hmm. if you will, and how that changed uh, interaction and changed security and changed the way that the Hill, Hill operated and stuff like that. Uh, do, you, do you find it easier dealing with staff now, or do you find that maybe they, the stress level of them, I mean, a combination of things, all the things that are happening in all of our lives during this, the things that are happening in their lives because uh, of being on Capitol Hill and the change in the work environment and how they did things and how they do things and, and technology. I mean, there there's been a massive change. Is it different now trying to deal with them? I, my sense is the stress level on Capitol Hill is, is significantly enhanced, is, is higher. Um, from a, especially when you're thinking about earlier this year, you know, from a security perspective, uh, of course. Um, but then, I mean, there's a real level of burnout. I mean, congressional staff have been charging along all through last year with COVID relief packages that seemed to pop up every other week. You know, there was a new iteration of them. And then, you know, jumping into a new Congress this year with all the stuff happening with a new president as well that wants to achieve some, some legislative wins. I think there's a real sense of, of just exhaustion, which I, I think will turn into normally August is a great time to catch up with some staff and, and kind of have sort of more of those low key relationship building uh, meetings and activities. Um, I wonder if that's going to be harder this coming August because people are kind of just want to check out and be like, you know, I need a week or two to, to reset. And, and the good thing is that maybe they should be checking out because when they come back a little bit refreshed, and, and ready to go then. then. Oh, only if we've done a highway bill by August though. <laughs> well, what do you think the odds of that are? Very slim. <laughs> I knew your answer, but I wanted you to, to go ahead and share that. So what tools are you now using? Because we just talked, talked about all the shifts and the changes in, in Capitol Hill and staffing and technology. So what tools are you using to help keep your member companies and individuals educated and engaged when it comes to your advocacy priorities and efforts. So, you know, going back decades, we, we have always hosted a, an annual, like every other group, uh, hosted an annual uh, legislative fly-in here in DC. Um, we were, we normally hold ours in the springtime, so in April time period. So we were slated to do that last year. Obviously everything shut down about a month, month and a half before we were slated to do that. Um, so we pivoted to a virtual fly-in um, in September of last year, and then a second one in April of this year. And so we actually undertook two different virtual fly-ins within about six months of each other. Um, and w- they were extraordinarily successful, Roger. It was, you know, you always, you know, we were one of the first, if not really the first organization, I think, that were trying that out last September. It was right after the uh, August recess, really. And, um, and we were really nervous. We were really nervous about the technology. Um, we were really nervous about uh, members of Congress 
not knowing how to log in to something. <laughs> um, there's there's some sort of gaps of knowledge there, certainly. Uh, and it went incredibly well. We could not have asked for a, a better um, event for both our members and the effectiveness of it. And, and I'll, I'll give you just a quick example. Our participation rate went up and we usually have pretty good participation and we usually have pretty good participation by first time attendees. Um, but our, our rate, we had bigger numbers both in September and earlier this year. And, uh, and our first time attendees went up too. And, and we had a great briefing. We did, you know, we do a briefing and we set up all the meetings for our members on Capitol Hill. And we did that virtually as well. And so we had, uh, we, we transitioned to have a slightly different model for our Hill meetings. It, rather than if you, Roger, are from, you know, Philadelphia and your congressperson is Brendan Boyle, um, rather than maybe you meeting with Brendan, because that doesn't make sense for what we're trying to do potentially, you would be meeting maybe with the, the TNI, the transportation committee members from, from Pennsylvania, along with all of our other members from Pennsylvania. So it was more of a delegation style where in person you would be meeting with your congressional office. We have the bandwidth to do that. But from a technological perspective, we wanted to make sure that we, we, we still did something like 80 virtual meetings in about eight hours. Um, but we wanted a staff person in every single meeting in case there was a problem that arose, um, which we don't typically have a staff person in every meeting um, in person on the Hill. So it's worked great. Um, and then I'm a big also believer in site visits, especially you know representing companies that that do things, both manufacturing and contractors. Um, you you know, I could be meeting with a member of Congress ten different times and talk about minimum levels of pavement marking retroreflectivity. And they're never gonna know what I'm talking about. Um, but if I can bring them out to a construction project and especially in the evening and say, you see, you can see that line on the road when your headlights hit it and they say, yeah, it's really bright, boom, done. That's exactly what we're talking about. So if you can get your members of Congress to touch and feel things, um, that to me is wildly more effective than any meeting you're going to do. COVID made that difficult. But what we did was we had Zoom meetings with some of our companies and some of our chapters with, with congressional offices. And then that laid the groundwork for as soon as this started letting up, having them out to their businesses again. And we've already started congressional site visits. We've, we've already, I flew out to Ohio four weeks ago um, for one, uh, where we had a, a member of the transportation committee visit one of our manufacturers in central Ohio. Um, and that stemmed from a virtual meeting we had just a couple of months ago. So it was laying the groundwork, being, being hitting the ground as soon as things started to open back up. And I think that was critical. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So, so this year you had two events uh, uh, virtually. Uh, I'm hearing from others in the industry that where they traditionally would do one live in-person uh, Capitol Hill day, that they may now be going to a model, somewhat of a hybrid, but not necessarily a hybrid for the event. One being a live event, uh, and then another one later in the year being the virtual event, keep the momentum going and, and keep the follow-up. Do you see that as a, uh, as a possibility? I think what we would likely do, because um, we've had really tremendous success launching a virtual town hall program throughout uh, the pandemic. And so we would bring together, usually it was chapter related. We, we did several national ones, but usually we would target our chapters. And we did this both at the, with federal legislators 
and state, um, you know, lieutenant governors and, and, and legislators as well, we bring together our chapter with that decision maker or elected official and have that half hour or 45 minute long dialogue um, specifically geared towards issues in that state, whether it's federal or, or state um, uh, elected official. I, I can envision us doing our traditional in-person um, advocacy day, both state and federal, because we do do both uh, fly-ins at the state level and fly-ins at the federal level. And then coupled with that, these sort of virtual town halls that keep that conversation going. I'm also a firm believer that one and done once a year is a waste of time, resources, energy, stress, you go down the line, um, yep. is not worth your time. If you're only going to bring people to town once a year and then you know shut the door for another 12 months, don't bother. But if you're going to do that and then encourage your members or your clients or um, your company uh, employees to further that dialogue and continue that dialogue, and if there's something that the trade association can do to enhance that, um, that I think is where the virtual aspect will become very handy. Members of Congress have spent the last year and a half um, being very available to constituents and folks around the country. It's going to be very difficult for them to have to give that up. Um, exactly. they, may want to, they may want to give it up, um, but now we've had a taste of this availability um, that there's going to be an expectation to some extent that, that members of Congress um, be available, maybe not as frequently as during COVID, but more frequently than before. But it may be easier for them because if you're doing things, even in a virtual environment on the multiple touches throughout the year, you know, instead of spending, I live in Arizona, the size and scope of the state of Arizona and the size and scope of the congressional district geographically, when you think of places like Wyoming and Montana and some of the, the states that have very few members of Congress, their geographic district is massive. And if yeah. they get invited to something within the district, it could be a three-hour drive to get there. Could be a three-hour flight. Or three-hour flight. Well, yeah. yeah. If you're a senator from California, yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah, at Senate level, absolutely. No question about that. Um, how do you find additional advocates? We, we, I, we were talking, you and I were talking a little bit earlier that I just got off a, a Zoom call with some members of our board of directors on specifically about advocacy and preparing for uh, 2022. And the last 15 minutes was focused on um, exactly that question is how do we enhance, we do a great, you know, I, I think we do a great job with our advocacy program. Our board is very happy with our advocacy program, um, but you always need more of your people involved. Uh, at the end of the day, that's going to strengthen your voice. It's going to make it harder for legislators to ignore you. And it's going to make you more effective when you are sort of announcing what you would like the government to do. Um, that's an ever challenge for us. It's going to be focused on working with our membership department and trying to really show why. What, what do people get out of giving up their, their time, their, their resources, their business to come to D.C. or go to the state capitol what what benefit is there besides sort of this greater good of, of roadway safety? And, and it's incumbent upon us as a trade association to really show the direct connection about involvement here means all of these legislative outcomes over here. And we have a great story to tell. I mean, if you just look at the, the federal program on roadway safety, uh, which was established in the 2005 highway bill, prior to the 2005 highway bill, Congress invested about 
$600 million or so annually. There was no program. It was just sort of a set aside here, a little bit of money there, about $600 million annually for roadway safety infrastructure projects. Um, let's assume that the say the Senate highway bill that was worked on about a month ago gets signed into law. That number would go from in 2005 being $600 million annually to about $3.2 billion annually. And so that is a, and that's in about 15, 16 years. I mean, that's a massive increase. I mean, compared to the federal government spending, that's still a very small amount of money. Um, sure. But you can show you can show your members or your clients um, the, the successes. Success breeds success. So, you know, you start building on some of these legislative wins and it's fun. Like people enjoy it. It's, I'll give you another great example. Um, we, like I said, we do a lot of work at the state level in Texas a couple of years ago, uh, we worked on a slow down move over law. And so in Texas, prior to our work, um, the law only stipulated that you as a driver had to slow down or move over if it was a Texas DOT truck on the side of the road. If it was a private contractor that was doing work for the Texas DOT, didn't have to do it, which is dumb and crazy because a life is a life, right? Like a construction worker's life doesn't matter if they're a Texas DOT employee or a private contractor. So we went to the, the, the legislature. And if you remember, if you know anything about Texas politics, the legislature, the legislature is only in session every other year, which is mind boggling for the size, especially for a size of, of a state like Texas. Um, so you only have about a three or four month window to do work out of 24 months. Um, and so we were able to create the idea, get the bill um, uh, uh, dropped, so sort of introduced by fine champions, get it introduced, um, do hearings on it, have our members be witnesses, do an advocacy day on it, get it passed by the legislature and signed into law all out of one, the, the first time. So we started in January, we signed a law in May, boom. Our members not were just thrilled about the fact that that's going to protect lives and be a really good safety model, but they enjoyed it. They, 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 you know, this this notion that nothing ever happens in government was just blown out of the water. Like, hey, we are concerned citizens. We have a problem. Government reacted in a positive way. They were jazzed. They were super excited. Well, I was in I, I was in D.C. Uh, last month working with a client, and one of the issues that they were advocating for, and uh, uh, they were advocating it on a. Wednesday, and as sometimes luck falls in your lap, they literally had it passed by the Senate Thursday morning and the House by acclamation Thursday afternoon and on the president's desk by Friday, and they were there in person on Wednesday. So the people that are there are just jazzed that one of the three issues that they took to their members of Congress and staff <laughs> literally got done like that. You should send that to the Guinness uh, World Records. I mean, exactly. that's unheard of. I talked to the head of advocacy and I said, great work. And he said, sometimes it's great to be lucky than, uh, than, than good. And I, did, I, I don't agree with that. I think that they knew exactly uh, the, the timing where they thought things would fall on that. And that's how, how they tied it together. Uh, What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of advocacy? That's a great question. Um, you know, to me, it's 
it's educating about an issue you're passionate about, but in a truthful way. And I think that without the truthful aspect of that, um, everything else is BS, no offense. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that you, you tell the good, you know, you, you advocate for your beliefs. And when the question is asked of who's against this or why shouldn't we do it, you, you answer that truthfully, but then you make a stronger point for, for your own side. And it just makes you a, a, a more credible resource for these legislators. I mean, we all know this, but for folks who are just coming into the advocacy world, you're caught in a, a mistruth or a lie once and, and you're done. And so it's, it's, it's not worth that aspect. So to me, as much as um, maybe the American public in general, maybe potentially, not, not potentially, but probably thinks negatively about, about our industry, um, at the end of the day, the vast majority of folks who are up on Capitol Hill or in state capitals um, are, are doing something that they're passionate about and they're, they're being truthful about it. But without that truth aspect, you can't build that relationship in that, in that connection um, to get your point across. It takes a long time to build and a second to destroy. Absolutely. 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 No question about it. Uh, any final thoughts, anything you'd like to add, Nate? You know, it's, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I love advocacy. I, I think that it is, I mean, even as, as my role has changed over the years, I've been doing this and I, and I oversee um, membership as well as advocacy. Advocacy touches so much of what we do. And it's something, again, I'm speaking from a trade association perspective. It's something that we can deliver to our members that by and large, those member companies can't do themselves. You know, you know the bigger companies, absolutely. You know, multinational corporations for sure. Um, even some sort of larger um, company, like contractor companies, will will have will have professional uh, representation. But this is something that we can deliver to our members that the mom and pop contractor company down the street who's who employs ten people is certainly not going to have the ability, or it wouldn't make sense for them to hire their own. So. The, the great thing about it is it brings together a community, it brings together an industry to talk about something that there is common ground on and that they can leave, ideally, their differences aside um, for the moment to talk about that greater good. And then when you start folding in, as we talked about, uh, you know, those, those coalition partners and those broader support partners, um, that just kind of it resonates and it, and it creates this sort of groundswell of, of good of goodwill. I'll, I'll give you a quick a quick story. You know, as we I think we as we wrap up here, um, grassroots advocacy is a big piece of this too, and we didn't really talk about that. Um, you know, it's getting all the people back in the states to on a specific issue or a specific time uh, reach out to the delegation, and uh, and we do a hybrid grassroots but also grass tops. So it's sort of VIPs or or chapter leaders or something like that. And um, my, uh, so, you know, we, we use social media for part of this as well. And um, we had a new marketing communications team and, and they were giving us some of the responses of people who were liking and commenting on some of our social media feeds. And I said, oh, wow, that's great. Like those numbers are great. Like, who are they? And, and it, no, they start going down the list, um, you know, Karen Smith. And I said, ah, well, that's my mom. And, uh, and then they went down to the next person and it was, you know, Roseanne Peterson. And I said, oh, that, you know, that's my mom's cousin. And there were about five of my own family members on there, but they all take action every single time that we send out a, a call to action. And that's the point of grassroots advocacy. It's getting people who aren't directly affiliated with your industry to care enough 
to send that letter or, or pick up the phone and, and make that call. And that's exactly you know, what we're all trying to do is convince the next person that they should care about what we care about. That's right. And you never know who knows who, who knows who. And, and, that's, and that's, you know, the really unique thing. And I, I've got a, a great story that uh, we don't have time to share here today, but I was literally called into a meeting with four senators because the one senator wanted to talk to me about their, their son playing on my son's hockey team. <laughs> but you never know you what never gets know. you where you need to be. And then the questions ask about why are you here and what, what are you doing? And so, that's great. You know, there's a there's a thousand of those little stories of that's what meant we're just like everybody else. And that's why that's why you need to be nice to everybody, because that example, but also the example of be nice to the intern and the front desk person in the congressional office, because they're going to be the congresswoman, you know, or congressman someday. So absolutely. And in today's environment, I think empathy is a big key. As we're talking to these staffs, you know, how are you doing? How is everything going? Because I think that's really important that they know that we care about them as well. Absolutely agree with that. Wonderful. Hey, Nate, how can people reach ATSA uh, for more information? Sure. Um, our web address is atsa.com. Um, that's A-T-S-S-A dot com. Yep, that's correct. Um, also on, uh, on Twitter, it's at A-T-S-S-A-H-Q. Um, and uh, we have a Facebook page and LinkedIn. And uh, we're based in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So just south between Washington and, and, um, and Richmond. And then we certainly have a Washington, D.C. office as well. So um, we're around. We're, we're, we're out there. Um, and, you, you know, you can reach me you know, through, through the website as well. So, uh, you know, would love to connect with folks. Wonderful. Nate, what a great, great conversation I think that we had and I think that our listeners are going to absolutely love. And so that's a wrap up of the conversation with Nate Smith, Vice President of Engagement, this big umbrella that he has within the American Traffic Safety Services Association. Thanks, Nate, for being on the show today. This was great. Thanks, Roger. Now it's time for the advocacy engagement tip. Did you know that there are over 538,000 elected officials in the United States? Only 537 are in the federal government in Washington, DC. The president, vice president, and 535 members of Congress. There are 7,300 elected officials in state legislatures and over 529,000 in local governments. Do you have a program in place to advocate to local and state elected officials? We are proud to have Rap Index as a sponsor to the show. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com 
and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast today. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and unwavering passion for advocacy. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.